Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Infant formula is one of the most regulated food products we have. I'm Annie Reese, and this is Politico Dispatch. And so to see this debacle unfold over several months, to see these shortages, to see these questions about coronavirus infections and infant deaths, it's really shaken. I think a lot of consumers into asking questions about whether or not we do have enough regulation. Do we have enough attention paid to this supply chain? Helena bottomiller Evich has been breaking stories left and right on the FDA's failures to effectively regulate food. As far as I know, I haven't been banned from, from FDA's campus, but um, I've certainly, certainly written some tough stories for the agency in recent weeks. Today, Helena shares her reporting on the latest in the FDA's infant formula saga, a whistleblower report that reveals a bigger picture of contamination and falsifying records at one of the largest plants making infant formula in the U.S. So far, we know there have been complaints to FDA about four hospitalizations, including two infant deaths. All four of those cases had Cronobacter sakazakia, which is a really rare but potentially deadly bacteria. And those reports came in in like September no, and then between November and January. So we know that there are four specific complaints that are being investigated here. I have, though, many, many, many more families reaching out to me who believe they were sickened as part of this. Yeah. We obviously do not have any verification of that. And it is a big question, like, you know, whether or not parents are sort of misattributing. But it is so, so, so easy to find parents who believe their children were sickened. And in some cases, really seriously injured by by the formula. So back in February, you wrote about this massive infant formula recall, which was controversial, A, because of the scale of the recall, and B, because the FDA knew about this for months before they actually recalled. So the big unanswered question for you at the time, I remember, was basically how this happened. Do you know any more now about the how? I think we still have so many questions about how this has happened and the government's long timeline from, you know, the first uh, infant getting sick in September to then inspecting the plant in question in January. And then you mm -hmm. mentioned the big recall in February. I mean, that's just, that's a five month timeline. We know a little bit more about what has happened in between. Last week, I reported that there was a whistleblower from Abbott Nutrition Sturgis, Michigan plant, a former employee who actually wrote a 34-page document with a lot of details warning FDA about food safety concerns in the plant at the center of all of this. And this is a pretty major revelation mm. because, again, you go back to the timeline and there's just so many questions of, you know, why did it take the government so long to respond? And this adds another data point where we know that you know, then acting commissioner Janet Woodcock, several high, very high level FDA officials were all sent uh, paper copies of this whistleblower disclosure, which outlines 
allegations of lax cleaning practices, purposely falsified records, efforts by plant officials to keep FDA from learning things about the plant. I mean, really serious allegations. And we do not know why there was not swift action taken after that. The whistleblower complaint raised other allegations, as you mentioned, about food safety at the plant, like not just the Cronobacter Sakazaki, but also it seemed like really lax standards about other harmful bacteria and basically like a system for avoiding detection when FDA inspectors came. Can you kind of like detail some of their other complaints? There's a lot here in this document. I think one of the most stark things is a description of this plant being a place where both current and former employees were fearful of retaliation if they raised food safety or other concerns. Mm. And this dynamic is important because this plant is the highest paying and largest employer in Sturgis, Michigan. Mm. So I think that makes the dynamic a little bit more difficult even for employees there. And there's a quote in the document that says, it is a workplace where fear of retaliation is palpable. The basis for that fear is well-founded. And they give a lot of examples of different things that have happened in the plant. One of the concerning things is allegations that plant officials knowingly falsified records in many cases. And a lot of time was basically that they were leaving out key information so that the records essentially wouldn't be complete or would be more difficult to review. They were also, in many cases, using paper records still, which again makes it harder to review when FDA officials do come in for their annual inspection. Mm -hmm. There's also a couple of specific examples, like the whistleblower alleges that the plant had trouble with ensuring that the infant formula cans were fully sealed So apparently sometimes the powdered formula was getting in the seal itself. So it was kind of compromising that seal. And the whistleblower alleges that instead of the company really like addressing that problem head on, they started doing essentially quality tests on empty cans. Wow. So like they would be fully sealed. So just sort of specifics like that really paint a picture of a really poor food safety culture. Yeah. An infant formula is supposed to be the most regulated food product we have. I mean, the FDA actually inspects infant formula plants usually about once a year or at least once a year, which is a lot more often than other food products. And during COVID, a lot of inspections were suspended. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of layers to this investigation, a lot of things we still don't know. But the whistleblower disclosure really raises more questions about FDA's response and why, you know, if you receive a disclosure like this in October, why then would the agency do an inspection of that plant in January, like late January? And in the meantime, you know, there are more reports of of children being sickened. Have you heard back from the FDA or the plant in Sturgis about your questions? I haven't heard back from Abbott yet. FDA sent me a statement that is very much along the lines of what they've been saying for weeks, which is, this is an active investigation. We know there's questions about the timeline. They're focused on getting recalled product off the market. 
you know, they've been saying that for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this recall happened in mid-February and it's now, what, almost it's May? It's May. <laughs> early yeah. May. It's early May. So folks I'm talking to in the food industry and consumer world are like, really, how long can they use that line that mm-hmm. this is, that their focus is getting recalled product off the market? But the FDA in no way acknowledged the whistleblower document. They did not acknowledge the allegations and they did not offer an explanation for why swift action was not taken. I hate to be one of those people that's like, the media isn't covering it because I often find that to be not true. But I don't think I've seen stories about this infant formula recall as many other places. It doesn't seem like it's really captured the national attention. I think that's fair. It's one of the things I'm hearing from parents. They're constantly asking me, why is this situation not getting more coverage? Not just the FDA's response and sort of what's going on with that plant, which by the way, makes usually makes a pretty significant portion of the country's entire infant formula supply. So not only those policy questions, but there is almost no coverage of the really intense formula shortages we're having right now. There's a lot of supply issues with brands not being available in stores. And then there are some really, really significant concerns around certain specialty formulas that are known as amino amino acid formulas that are used by thousands of children and even adults who have really rare diseases. And it's their sole source of nutrition. There's a lot of panic and concern about whether or not there's enough supply and whether or not some of these supply chain issues and shortages will get worked out in the near future. Um, so this has been really disruptive in addition to there being a lot of questions about the government's response. So I'm not seeing a lot of coverage. I think it is something that is puzzling for parents who are really stressed about this stuff right now. You've been doing some basically blockbuster reporting detailing the silent F in the Food and Drug Administration, basically that the FDA has been failing to meet consumer standards on food safety and nutrition. And it feels like this infant formula recall story really does fit into this larger reporting about the FDA's failures with regard to food. I think it is part of the bigger picture for sure. And one of the interesting things about this particular incident with the whistleblower is it really points to the ongoing concerns about the leadership and decision-making structure on food within FDA. So um, many top officials, including then acting commissioner Janet Woodcock, who's now deputy commissioner, uh, Susan Main, who's the director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, and the head of the Office of Regulatory Affairs, which which oversees all of FDA inspections, they were all sent copies of this document. But the other top food official at um, FDA, Frank Yanis, the Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy and Response, um, apparently or doesn't appear to have been sent a copy. And I reported that Deputy Commissioner Yanis did not know about the October complaint until February. So there are also questions about the information flow, Mm -hmm. to what extent officials are really working together. I mean, I reported a few weeks ago that there is an open power struggle between the director of CIFSAN and the deputy commissioner for the foods program. So 
it seems like this fits into that pattern. And there are going to be more questions, I think, about who's making decisions. Are those decisions timely? And are they eventually going to have to explain why this has unfolded the way it has? Helena Bademiller-Evich, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>